You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement. The pastor God has put over your life or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Our passage for today is Exodus 23, verse 20 through 24, verse 8. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. And if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Prezites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, I will blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and the wilderness of the Euphrates, and I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, and the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in it hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are our God, and we are your people. 
Once we were not your people, but now we are your people because of Christ's shed blood. Once we did not receive mercy, but now we are recipients of your mercy. For Christ got what we deserved. And so, Father, open our eyes this morning. Open our hearts, open our minds to comprehend what, what it means to be in this relationship with you. What it means for right now and what it means for these next minutes and these next days and these next weeks. Help us to hear from you. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, I think if some of you, if you're, you're gathering in a house-to-house gathering right now, if some of you were ter- would turn to each other and you would, we would ask the question, um, give me one word to describe God's role in our relationship with him, you would get a variety of answers. Right, so if you went ahead and did that right now, somebody might say yeah, his role is father. Or others might say his role is shepherd. Others might say he's, he's my redeemer. Some might say he's, he's the wonderful counselor. He's the master or he's the teacher. But I wonder if any of you would think of, of this terminology for God's role. Partner. Partner, that word is the essence of what it means to be in a covenant relationship in the ancient Near East. You see, what what kings would do in, in the ancient Near East is they would enter into these covenants with one another, into these partnerships with one another, and they said, we are going to be partners until our death. We hear that similar language in marriage ceremonies. Till death do we part. Now, I'm sure you can think of other relationships that have this type of a agreement. I mean, if you work in construction, uh, you're underneath a contract until the job is finished. Or if you rent an apartment right now, you're underneath an agreement until the lease is up. But we need to think about our partnership, our agreement with God a, a wee bit differently. Because in all those other relationships... We had to do the pursuing. We had to keep up the work. But in this relationship, God does the pursuit. God does the work of the partnership. Remember, this book of the covenant that we've been studying from chapters 20 now to the end of chapter 23 is a response. Is a response to God's one-way love towards Israel. This is not just a book of rules for rule's sake. It's rules that defined a relationship. It's not just a book of precepts for precepts sake, but these precepts defined the partnership between God and his people. See, what we will unearth in this passage is that our partnership with God is not based on our performance, but rather it's based on his promises. Our partnership with God is not based on our performance. Can somebody say amen? Amen. But it's based on his promises offered to us in the Messiah, in Christ Jesus. And we'll dig and we'll discover 
uh, from this passage that God is, first point, the, the God who goes before us. And second point, he is the God who partners with us. Y'all ready to dive in? First point, the God who goes before us. God right now, through his, his prophet Moses, is turning his attention to the future. Verses 20 through 22, he's basically saying, I want you to get ready, Israel, because my angel is going to go before you. He's going to guard you in your travels. He's going to lead you in the way, and he's going to prepare a place for you. Pay attention to him. Listen to him. Don't go against him. He's not going to put up with you your, your rebellion. Because my name is in him. Now, now, who is this angel of the Lord that if they listen to, both the women and, and the beasts with Israel will not be barren? Who, who is this angel that sends the hornets and the terror in verses 27 and 28? Well, this is none other than the angel of the Lord. Now, every time you interact with the angel of the Lord, this is a, this is a peculiar and particular angel that we see across the Old Testament. You, you're left wondering, am I interacting with a messenger? For that's what angels were. Is this just a messenger of Yahweh? Or is this a form of Yahweh, like we met back in Exodus 2 and 3? I mean, even here in verse 21, the name Yahweh is in him. We have to understand that this angel of the Lord is both and. Tim Mackey, a, a Bible scholar and theologian from the Pacific Northwest, writes this. He says, the angel of the Lord is Yahweh and distinct from Yahweh. So he is Yahweh and distinct from Yahweh. And we even see that in how Moses commands the Israelites to listen to and obey God. But he's telling them to obey and listen to Yahweh or to the angel of the Lord right here. In verse 22, he says, But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. The angel of the Lord promises to go before them if they listen. Yahweh is saying, If you obey me, I will expel your enemy. I mean, I shared in a sermon a few weeks ago that relationships require expectations, right? When we were, we were young, expectations were low. I mean, for my daughters right now, if you want to be their friend, all you have to do is chase them, right? When they meet new, new kids at the playground, all you have to do is chase them around the playground and you're BFFs for life. Now, hopefully, by their teenage years, we can root that qualification out of the way that they build relationships, but as we grow, we know that expectations become a little bit more complex and even a bit more exclusive. I mean, this is even true in our work environment relationships. I mean, think of a job that you hold right now. Imagine working for a company and then you're using everything that you learn, the knowledge of the product, of they sell or whatever they provide, you're using that to help out the competitor. What would happen? They wouldn't put up with it. You'd be fired. There are expectations with relationships, with partnerships. And for the Israelites, there's expectations for this covenant partnership with God. 
in any loving relationship, the rules are meant to define and build up the relationship. And you see this from verses 23 to 31. He's saying, I don't want you to worship false gods because they always overpromise and underdeliver. They're not going to give you what you think they'll give you. They did not save you like I did, and they will not save you. And he doesn't want them entering into a partnership, a covenant with pagan nations. Why? Because they'll lead them astray. They'll lead them to not follow Yahweh. And God says, I promise I will drive them out if you listen to me. All you will see is the backs of their necks. And we get to observe, my, my wife and I were talking about this yesterday, we get to observe God's kindness in this passage. And do you notice how he gives them the land? Little by little, bit by bit. Why? Because they're not large enough to farm and cultivate the entire land just yet. If he did, it'd be overtaken by wild beasts. You know what he does? He gives them what they need as they need it. It's a gradual, gracious gifting of something that they do not deserve. But God knows that they need. See, when God goes before us, he prepares what we need as we need it. Which means, whatever you don't have right now, you don't need. Do you trust him with that? That he's preparing what you need as you need it. Now, I know that many of your friends have objections with this passage. Or some of you listening in who might consider yourself an atheist or agnostic or a skeptic here. You think it's unjust for God to wipe out innocent people. Well, on one hand, like we talked about two weeks ago, you can't have a concept of justice and the law without a lawgiver and a judge. But on the other hand, you have to be really careful here when you make those arguments. Because what we're presuming here, what you might be presuming here, is that the nation's are innocent. Remember, these are the nations that practice bestiality. These are nations that practice ritual orgies, then infanticide, sacrificing their own kids. And that's just not a turn of a phrase. They literally killed their kids on the altar to the gods they worshipped. This was not an innocent nation. And it never had been. In fact, you see God's patience and kindness that he waited so long, that he allowed the nations to remain in this land as long as they did. I mean, if you recall from Genesis chapter 15, do you remember what he told Abraham? Why, that, why the Israelites had to stay in Egypt for 400 years as slaves? It's because the sin of the Amorites, the iniquities of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's not yet full. Now this means God was patient with them for hundreds of years, merciful with them for generations. And what we know from the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 is that these nations knew who Yahweh was. 
They feared him. They knew about him. They heard the story of how God overthrew Pharaoh. They had a chance to repent. And they never did. See, if you don't turn to this just judge of a God, his judgment of you is just. See, God promises to go before them to wield his justice if they listen. And remember, listening in obedience to the voice of God includes repentance. See, the rebellion that we read in verse 21 that, that says we, the angel of the Lord will not forgive those transgressions, that is a rebellion where you completely leave God and with zero repentance. But repentance is part of obedience. It's part of listening. Repentance is turning away from our sin. It's turning away from our shame, turning away from our fear. However, as you turn from one direction to another, you're not to turn towards pleasure. And you're not to turn towards more works to earn your righteousness, to fix your relationship with God. You're to turn back to the living God who has promised, who has promised that it's not about your performance. It's about his And it's about his promises of forgiveness. God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and promises us that he will forgive us, even when we fail to listen and obey. Anybody in in that seat this morning? (laughs) I am. See, our partnership with God is not based on our performance, but his promises, even his promise of forgiveness to those who turn to him, This is the promise of a God who goes before us. But it's also the promise of a God who partners with us. And that's our second point. So Moses again, I think this is now the fourth time where he ascends that mountain. He's going to have some big calves by this point. He's in chapter 24. He says, you can bring Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the entire crew. But only you, Moses, can come near. So after Moses meets with God, he comes back down and he recites all the rules of the book of the covenant again. And pay attention to Israel's response in verses 3 of chapter 24. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then in verse 4, Moses busts out his fountain pen and his moleskin and he writes down everything that the Lord is saying. The next morning, he and his crew built an altar of stone. And then there's 12 pillars. You guys know what that represents? 12 tribes of Israel. That's right. And they sacrifice burnt and peace offerings. That burnt offering, that represented atonement for their sin. It was a payment for individual sins as well as societal corporate sins. And this peace offering is a offering so there would be peace between the offended and the offender. What these offerings meant is that God is holding nothing back from his people and his people are holding nothing back from God. This is a raw relationship, deep union, deep partnership, no turning back. They're saying, God, Yahweh is our God and we are Yahweh's people. And just to make sure the people understood, what does Moses do again? He reads from the book of the covenant. And the response is similar 
They say in verse 7 and 8, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the ratification of the covenant. You can think of their rescue, their exodus from Egypt as the proposal for the marriage. And at Sinai, this is the ceremony to ratify the covenant, the commitment, the partnership between God and man. And this idea of covenant partnership goes all the way back to Eden, where God formed his first partnership with Adam and Eve. What were they to do? To fill the land and multiply it. Then we see a few more covenant partnerships appear. See a covenant between God and Noah, and then God and Abraham, and then here with Israel, then eventually you'll see another one with King David. But what is true about every single one of these covenants is that God was faithful to his partnership and Israel failed. Every time. See, God desired for his people to be his representatives, his image bearers. And this sprinkling of the blood that we just read about in verses 7 and 8, this was partnership language. For the kingdom of Israel, the entire kingdom, to be a kingdom of priests. This ceremony we only find later in Scripture to be reserved for the priests of God. So what is God doing here? He's making himself known to all of Israel so they can be his representatives, his partners, in making himself known to all the nations. We read this back in Exodus 19, verse 6. God says to Israel, and you shall be to me a kingdom of, say it, priests and a holy nation. They are to be set apart. Now, what do priests do? Well, priests were in this partnership with God to others, but their main job was to plead to God on behalf of others. Israel as a nation was meant to be the nation's priests. They were a kingdom of priests so that the nations would know who Yahweh is. How would they do that? Well, by being set apart. Not looking like or acting like all the other nations. They'd be holy for their God is holy. They would obey his word. They would follow his voice. They would not listen to false gods. They would not try to act like or be like all the nations around them. But with each one of these warnings, Israel failed time and time again. They looked like Israelites, but they acted like the nations. I mean, this would be as ridiculous as a Steelers fan in all of their black and yellow glory cheering for the Cleveland Browns today. Or worse, the Ravens. Right? We'd call them ridiculous, call them crazy. What are you doing? You got the right jersey, but the wrong team. Sadly, this is Israel's story. Right jersey, wrong team. Sadly, this is my story at times. And if you're like me, your story. Right jersey, wrong team. We love to claim the robes of righteousness of Christ Jesus. When it comes to our lives, 
we still look like our unrighteous neighbors who don't know Jesus. We're happy to bow down and utter the name that Jesus saves, but we still bow down to the gods of our culture and world, the gods of power, of pleasure, of status, of freedom, of happiness, and comfort. See, we, me too, this is me too here, we are like the Israelites who hear a preacher, somebody declaring all that God has done. And then in response to God's grace to us in Christ Jesus, we say everything that Jesus says we will do. But then from noon on Sunday till 10 a.m. the next Sunday, we don't look or love like Jesus. We look and we love like the world. We forget that our partnership with God is to make more disciples of all nations, including this nation. We forget that he's made himself known to us so that we can make him known to others. We forget, parents, that it's not about our kids' happiness, it's about their holiness. We forget it's not about our neighbor's pleasure in us. It's about our neighbor's pleasure in Christ. The same language of being a holy nation, being set apart, is not just for Israel. It's for the people of God. I mean, Peter is writing to Gentile, that is all other nations than Israel. He's writing to Gentile believers, and look what he calls them. These Gentile Christians. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is a partnership that God has chosen us for. We didn't choose God. We didn't possess ourselves. He possessed us. We didn't make us into a royal priesthood. We didn't make ourselves holy. He made us holy. Why? So that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's chosen us so that we can make him known. But most of us, when if we're honest with ourselves... When we think about this partnership, we think that we still have to go before God to prove that we are worthy enough for him to choose us. It's like kickball in middle school all over again. We think this is a partnership we have to work for. We think that it's a partnership that if we put in enough hours, then God will cut us a check at the end of the day. You know what this produces? You know what this mentality does that we have to work and go before God? It puts you at the center. It puts me at the center. It puts us thinking that we are the ones who have to go before God, which results in pride because we believe that we don't need him to go before us or with us. But for others, it can result in despair. 
because you think you're the one who has to hold up the end of the partnership. Because you realize you will never measure up. I mean, shoot, I can't measure up to my own standards, let alone God's. This partnership is not based on our works. And we believe that it results in pride or despair. See, this covenant partnership was never based on Israel's performance. Remember, God saved them before he gave them the book of the covenant. And he's now ratifying his covenant commitment and his partnership with them before they ever have a chance to obey in the promised land. This is not about works. This is about God's promises. And time and time again, we do see Israel failing to be faithful partners. But time and time again, we see God being faithful to his partners that when they turned back to him, he promised to forgive them. And he did. And he promised to forgive them in the person and work of their Messiah that was coming. The true and greater prophet that would come in the shoes of Moses. And this is Jesus. We're told in the Bible that Jesus is faithful Israel. He's the one who's able to truly follow, listen, and obey the law. Christ fulfills all of Israel's failures with God. He fulfills all of the laws that they should have filled. He fulfilled all of their partnering expectations with God. Christ himself is the New Testament expectation of the covenant, a covenant that cannot fail and a partnership that can never be broken because it's sealed in the shedding of his blood. And he is the great high priest who pleads with us continually before God. That it is his blood that saves us. It's his blood that continues to shape us and form us into his image. That despite our failures at every turn of the moment, we are able to keep this partnership because it's based on Jesus' performances and not ours. He was able to perfectly fulfill the law, perfectly fulfill this partnership when we have failed to. Through his perfect keeping of this covenant. Christ went before us in the ultimate partnership. He's not just the great high priest who pleads to God for us, but he's the lamb of God whose sacrifice, his blood was shed for. He went before us to the place of not acceptance, but of punishment. He went ahead of us to take the penalty for our broken relationship. You know what happens? You know what's promised to people who leave God and forsake God? Curses. Scripture writes that cursed is everybody who is hung on a tree. And where do we find Christ? Hanging from a cross for our sins. He shed his blood on the cross so that when we turn back to God, the promise of forgiveness is waiting for us. And he even promised that he would go before us to this cross. On the night that he was betrayed, he sat with his disciples and he partook in the Passover meal. And in Matthew 26, verses 27 to 28, he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, he says, drink all of it. 
all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you recognize that language there? It's similar to Moses' words, but different. Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant for the forgiveness of, for, for the covenant. And Christ says, this is my blood. My blood that I'm spilling for the forgiveness of sins. And those who believe in this offering, that Christ offers his life, so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we can regain and have a restored partnership with God. He offers his life so that we can have peace. We can have peace with God and now join God in this new partnership with Christ. You see, our partnership with God is based on a performance, but not ours, thanks be to God. It's Jesus's in our place. And when you trust him fully in his life, in his death, in his resurrection from the cross, all of God's promises are before you. They await you and they're based on Jesus's life, not our life. According to John 14, Jesus promises to go before us to prepare a place for us in the new heavens and new earth. According to John 17, Jesus is the one, similar to the angel in the Old Testament, who says he's going to guard and keep us along the way, even when there's opposition, even when there's suffering, and even when there is trials. And it's in Jesus, the same name that was in the angel of the Lord. Jesus says that name in John 17 is the name that you gave me, Father. The name that is above every name. The name that at the end at the end of this earth, the uniting of the new heavens, new earth, every knee will bow and confess Christ as Lord. Christ has done the work so that we can partner with God, but also that we can rest in the promises of God. That Jesus promises that when we believe in him, he'll not just go before us, but he'll be with us. And he gives us the down payment of our salvation, which is the spirit, the seal of our salvation, who is with us always, is with us to remind us that we are indeed children of God. While Jesus, the high priest, pleads to the Father through his blood, the spirit now pleads with us to remember that God loves us, that he is our Father. The promise that the gates of hell will will not overtake this church is ours. That if the gates of hell will not overcome the church, then neither will our failures and failed performances. Because Christ builds the church. And we have the promise that Jesus is going to finish the work that he began in us. He started that work. He will finish it, and he promises that he's going to continue that work in us. And he even promises that he's going to expel our final enemy from the land. You know what that is? Death itself. Because at the end of the Bible, the Apostle John describes this new heavens and new earth, this new partnership that we will have with God. And it will be to spread and multiply and fill the earth with his glory and his goodness and perfection to the end of the earth. But until that day, little by little, we will take the land, making one new disciple, one disciple 
at a time. This is the partnership that God invites us into. Not to prove that we are worthy of love by our performance, but in response to Jesus' performance on our behalf. And so as we wait for those new heavens and new earth, let's remember that we have a partnership church, a partnership that is not built on our performance, but on the promises of God in Christ Jesus. I want to leave you with these words from Jude. This is God's promise to you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, notice it's him who's keeping us from stumbling, and to present you blameless, we don't have to present ourselves blameless, to him who's able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you so much that you are a God who goes before us and you are a God who is with us. We praise you, Spirit, that you are with us right now.